Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Kristen Racanello, the producer and host of this podcast, and today we get to discuss the history of gemstone cutting and the different types of faceting that you can find throughout historical jewelry. The first jewelry was made, of course, of feathers and bones, shells and colored pebbles, materials that were readily accessible. Colored stones, or gems, have been admired for their beauty and durability and made into adornments for thousands of years. Diamonds were not very popular until people learned how to cut them and show their brilliance. You'll still find blogs claiming that the earliest jewelry is from around 25,000 years ago, but a finding in 2004 has disproven this. 41 shells with holes and marks in similar positions were found in a cave overlooking the Indian Ocean in South Africa. Archaeologists from France, Britain, and Norway were working on this dig and reported this in April of 2004 to the journal Science. Around 75,000 years ago then, in this cave near the southern Cape shoreline, a person drilled tiny holes into these shells of snails and strung them around as beads to make the oldest known piece of jewelry. That is, it's the oldest by at least 30,000 years. The shells appear to have been selected according to size, and they must have been brought to the Blambos Cave from rivers at least a dozen miles away. The shells are marked with traces of red ochre, so they were either decorated with this iron oxide pigment or they were worn by someone wearing that as makeup. These beads are dramatic evidence of modern human behavior 75,000 years ago. They are at least 35,000 years older than the earliest undisputed African ornaments, that is, some ostrich egg beads that are found in Kenya, and around 30,000 years older than some perforated teeth ornaments from Bulgaria and a string of seashell beads from Turkey. They are the first evidence of artistic creativity. Even in such ancient jewelry, we can find an interest and desire to selectively fashion stones and shape them into desirable, wearable objects. That's because most gemstones start out looking like ordinary rocks. They have to be cut and shaped and polished before they can be worn as jewelry, before they take on the special properties that we associate with different gemstones. The way a gemstone is worked reveals different qualities in that stone. So the practice of shaping stone, minerals, or gemstones into objects like cabochons, engraved gems, uh, including intaglios, and faceted designs is known as lapidary. A person who practices lapidary is known as a lapidarist. A lapidarist uses the lapidary techniques of cutting, grinding, and polishing. Hardstone carving requires specialized carving techniques. Hardstone carving is 
in general, the term for the artistic carving of predominantly semi-precious stones, such as jade, rock crystal, which is clear quartz, agate, onyx, jasper, serpentine, or carnelian, and for any object made in this way. In modern contexts, a gem cutter is a person who specializes in cutting diamonds, but in older contexts, it refers to artists who produced hard stone carvings, that is, engraved gems like jade carvings. And also we should remember that this is a branch of miniature sculpture, um, as well as larger scale sculpture could involve gemstone cutting. Before the development of gemstone cutting techniques, all stones were either raw or cabochon stones. A cabochon is a gemstone that has been shaped and polished, as opposed to faceted. The resulting form is usually a rounded obverse with a flat reverse. A steriated stones like star sapphires and cat's eye chrysoberyl. A domed cabochon cut is used to show the star or the eye of these kind of stones, which would not be visible in a faceted cut. We have a gorgeous, powerful example of this type of mounded cabochon cut in our current Byzantine gemstone ring, which is set with an amethyst. This towering ring was made around the year 500. It is not an asteriated stone, because it does not contain the same kind of conflicting crystalline structures as a stone like we would find in a cat's eye. But nonetheless, the deep violet amethyst features prominently, protruding above the heavy, golden, daringly high construction of the ring. It has a hollow hoop, rounded on the exterior and widening toward the shoulders and bezel. Set on top of the hoop, one over the other, are two octagonal stepped bases supporting a calyx-like setting for the large polished amethyst. In antiquity, amethysts of the deepest purple color, like this one on this ring, were sourced from India, Jordan, and Egypt, according to Pliny the Elder's Natural History where he refers also to lesser quality stones found on the Greek island of Cyprus. The Romans associated with the amethyst with wine because of its violet color and often fashioned drinking goblets from the gemstone. So, the stone was available in the ancient world, but amethysts were still much less commonly employed in Roman jewelry than other gemstones, especially garnets and emeralds, despite the fact that it features so prominently here. Perhaps the rarity of incorporating this stone into jewelry accounts for the visibility of this stone on this particular ring. The usual shape for cutting cabochons is an ellipse. This is because the eye is less sensitive to small asymmetries in an ellipse as opposed to a uniformly round shape like a circle, and because the elliptical shape, combined with the dome, is very attractive in jewelry as we've just seen with our Byzantine ring. A contemporary exception are cabochons on some watches' crowns, which are usually round. The procedure for cabochon cutting is to cut into a slab of rough rock with a slab saw and next to stencil a shape from a template. The slab is then trimmed near the marked lines. 
Today, this is done using a diamond blade saw, but in the past, the practice would have been performed usually with silica powder. Silica and diamond powder saws are known as trim saws. Diamond impregnated wheels or silicon carbide wheels can be used to grind this rough rock down. Most lapidary workshops and production facilities now have moved away from silicon carbide to diamond grinding wheels or flat lap discs. Once the piece is trimmed down, it can be doped or completed by hand. Dopping is normally done by adhering the stone with hard wax onto a length of a wood dowel called a dop stick. The piece is then ground to the template line. The back edges may be beveled, and finally the top is sanded and polished to a uniform dome. The cutting and polishing of a gemstone are an attempt to reveal the inherent beauty of the material, which, if it's opaque or slightly translucent, is generally given a smooth, rounded cabochon shape. More transparent material is usually cut with polished facets, arranged to make the most of color, refractive index, and the dispersion of that particular gem. Stone cutting techniques have steadily progressed with the aid of science and mathematics, so the natural properties of different gem materials have been better exploited. Stones that are cut away from the quarry tend to be more precise than those shaped by a lapidary at the source of the stone. There has always been a demand by jewelry manufacturers for stones to be cut to more accurate dimensions, as this speeds up the quantity production. Clever cutting can be a way of distinguishing unattractive features. For example, a thin color can be enhanced by adding depth to the lower part, the pavilion, of the stone, while a shallow cut can bring out the best in a piece of excessively dark material. Often stones are cut with disfiguring flaws cunningly situated at the edges or so arranged that the best color is at the center. Flaws reduce the value of a stone, but may also be an indication that it is of natural origin. In the trade, there's a tendency to avoid the pejorative term flaw when describing a fault in a stone, and instead the word inclusion is usually used. The cutting and polishing of diamonds has long been a separate skill from that of the other precious and semi-precious stones, while the shaping of agate, jasper, and similar materials cut as cabochons have also been the province of specialists to this day. In ancient times, again, all gemstones, except diamonds, were cut as cabochons, so the full beauty of the material usually remained hidden. The cutting and engraving of intaglios was, however, an art form that reached astonishing levels of sophistication. Engraving stones for use as jewelry had been a highly prized art in early Assyrian and Egyptian cultures, but only began to be developed in Greece in the 6th century BCE. The first method of engraving used by the Greeks was known as intaglio, or cutting a design into the surface of a stone, a recessed design. Intaglios, especially those on signet rings, were used as signatures by stamping impressions of the design into wax or other substances. 
Later, in the 4th century BCE, engravers perfected a method of creating raised designs on stones called cameos. This is essentially an inverse of the intaglio. The Greeks engraved designs into a variety of precious stones, such as onyx, agate, carnelian, jasper, and lapis lazuli, as well as other gems like emerald, sapphire, and ruby. Once engraved, these stones were set in delicately engraved and carefully shaped precious metals like gold. Later cultures also developed methods of both intaglio and cameo engraving. Roman jewelers in the first century made intricate wedding rings with carvings of the heads of the bride and groom and delicate pendants. Rich citizens of the Byzantine Empire of the 4th through the 15th centuries wore cameo rings and other elaborate jewelry. Cameo brooches, or pins with medallions of profiled heads, were especially popular among European women in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. We currently have quite a few cameos in our collection that demonstrate the astonishing quality of Renaissance cameos. The Renaissance welcomed a revival in the ancient art of gem carving, and cameos achieved a renewed popularity. Important patrons, like the Medici, employed artists and goldsmiths to make dozens of beautiful examples that harkened back to antiquity and displayed current fashions. One such ring is our Renaissance marriage portrait cameo ring. Double portraits of a man and woman, as we see with this ring, are called marriage portraits. They take their form from cameos of Roman rulers, mythological lovers, and citizen couples. It has a substantial rounded D-section hoop, narrowing at the base that supports an oblong collet set with a white agate cameo. The cameo features a woman bust behind a male in profile facing to the viewer's left. The man has a curly beard and wears a fillet in his closely cropped hair and wears a draped toga as well. The woman is less well-defined and wears a pala. Both portraits have flat features. The carving has a metallic quality to its lines, which enhances the sheen of the stone, and the cameo is in excellent condition. However, the mount is modern. Early attempts at faceting stones in order to produce an improved effect would have been a matter of trial and error, and also much labor. It's interesting to study, for example, the Cheapside Hoard, which was found in 1912 in London, and possibly the stock-in-trade of a jeweler. It's dated to around 1600, and the collection included many fancy-cut stones, and also cabochon-cut garnets and emeralds. The diamonds, however, were in the form of a simple table cut, because the rose cut had yet to come fully into use, and the brilliant was not developed until about 1700. It's highly probable that the hardness of diamond was one of the reasons for the delay in developing a suitable cut. The only way to shape a diamond is to rub it with another diamond, relying on the fact that the hardness varies slightly according to the angle of individual crystals within the structure of the material. The diamond powder generated is used for polishing. Diamonds can also be split along cleavage planes, and this technique has been used widely to speed the process of grinding and cutting. So to close out today's podcast, 
we will discuss just a few of the progressive types of cuts, of faceting, of different precious and semi-precious gemstones. To begin, after the cabochon, we have the octahedron. This is a cut from ancient times. The octahedral form of the stone cut, or of a diamond specifically, was used for jewelry. This is a polishing of the surface. The simple table cut was in widespread use until the 18th century, and the single cut, which has 18 different facets, was a natural development out of the table cut. An early form of the brilliant cut is based on a cut with 58 facets first made by Vincenzi Peruzzi, a Venetian lapidary, in about the year 1700. The advantages of Peruzzi's brilliant cut were only fully realized following calculations published in the 1919 by the 21-year-old Marcel Tolkowski. He proposed a shallower form for the stone and proportions which were designed to give maximum fire and brilliance. The tiny coulee facet is to reduce the risk of damage to the point of the pavilion or the base of the stone. Earlier, simple cuts are still used for smaller stones. Rose cuts date from the early 1600s. Their principal feature is a flat back, which means that they are usually set with foil behind them in order to reflect the light. The flat shapes are an economical way of cutting diamond rough since the percentage of waste is considerably lower than that for the brilliant. Other gems, like garnet and amethyst, were also shaped using these rose cuts, and there are a variety of different types of rose cuts, from the Antwerp rose, the half-dutch rose, and dutch rose, there's also a double-dutch rose, and a cross rose. When looking at a faceted stone, we can speak of a few different major features. There is the crown of the stone, the girdle, or the side, where the diameter is largest of the stone, and then also the pavilion or the underside of the stone. As gemstone and diamond cutting progressed, we developed more and more complex stones. Now, as stone cutting progressed, also the way that stones are held in jewelry also changed meaning that the bezel or the material that holds the stone into the jewelry also changed shape as the different facets of stone changed. This is a subject that we'll go into in a podcast in the very near future, the history of the bezel and also types of stones and false stones or imitation stones. So that's all for today's podcast on gemstone cutting. Did you enjoy this episode on the history of cut gems and jewelry? If you did, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and even to share this podcast with a friend who might be interested. We would love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. Do you know something about intaglios or cameos or the history of faceting? Please reach out to us and let us know. You can find out more about the jewelry discussed on our website, and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Listen Near. Thanks for listening. <laughs>